0: I had a relatively happy childhood, I like to think, but one of my least favorite parts of it was that I had to mow the lawn. Starting when I was about 12 years old, up until I graduated high school, uh, my dad made my brothers and me mow the lawn, and he didn't even pay us for it. Dad had this idea that mowing the lawn was something that we were supposed to do just because we were part of the family or whatever, so uh, we had to do that. I know it was horrible. Every week, you know, we took turns doing this, and this was, when I was a kid, the the experience was different from the way it is now when I mow the lawn, because now I've got a self-propelled mower, you know, that kind of starts with a little button, you just push it. Uh, We had more of a mower that required a lot of prayer in order to mow. You would just sort of grab this ripcord and just pull and pull and pull, pray that it would start and hope that it would start before your arm wore out, right, by the time you finally started going and you were pushing this lawnmower, you were almost too worn out to mow, but I managed to push through it. I would mow, I would trim the lawn and uh, go inside and then was when the really difficult part of the whole experience began and that was the lawn inspection. Uh, My dad would go out and he would inspect the lawn and particularly he would inspect those parts of the lawn that were least visible from the house. And uh, sometimes he would take his time going out there so that by the time he actually inspected it, it was after I had already taken a shower and was kind of on my way out the door to see friends. In fact, I learned to wait for a while before I cleaned up after mowing the lawn, because Dad would go out there, and you knew that you had missed something when you would hear Dad's voice, Matthew, Robert, Morton, right? And if you heard the whole thing like that, you knew you were going to have to go back out. That's why parents give kids middle names to yell something when they're in trouble. And so my dad would holler this, holler our whole name. We'd have to go out. We would have to go fix it. And at the time, I remember thinking, this is just the meanest, most evil system under which I am a serf in my dad's command, right? I just thought it was terrible that he did this to us. Now, in hindsight, now that I am a parent, There's a couple of things that I recognize about this whole experience. First of all, I know now that it would have been much quicker and easier for my dad to finish the lawn on his own. Had he just grabbed the trimmer and done it, he could have been done in a couple of minutes without facing the hassle of conflict with me or my brothers and making us go back out there and do it and be upset with him. It wasn't pleasant for him or for us. I actually used to think he kind of enjoyed doing that to us. In hindsight, I realized he didn't. The other thing I've realized is, as a parent now, why he did that. And it was because he wasn't really all that concerned with the grass. It didn't really matter in the grand scheme of eternity whether that little patch of grass behind the pine tree, behind the backyard, was fully trimmed. No one was ever really going to see it. What mattered was my character. What mattered to him was training us that when we started a job, we finished it. Training us that when we said we were done, we were filled with integrity in that process and we were actually done. Training us not to rush through and to be workers who had character and integrity. Uh, those of you who are parents know that discipline is rarely pleasant for you or for the child, right? Every parent has had that moment with a kid where you thought it would be so much simpler for me to clean the room than to endure the hours of threatening and begging and waiting for this child to do it on his or her own, right? You know that discipline is difficult on everybody. And yet, as a parent, you discipline and train because your primary goal is that that child develop in character and in maturity as he or she grows. The situation we are in related to our Heavenly Father is the same. That as you look through the scripture, God disciplines us. He sets boundaries around our behavior, around our thoughts, around our lives. He sets boundaries on us, not because he is mean, but because he loves us. And his primary goal is to train us to reflect his character. As we've been studying for the last several weeks, the fatherhood of God We really began with what is foundational in his relationship with us, which is that God loves us and wants us to know him and wants to have a relationship with us. And in fact, God created us to know him. He loves us so much, he wants us to be able to not only know him, but also to reflect who he is as his children so that we can proclaim him to the world. That's why we're made. And because God loves us, he knows that the best path for us to take, is the path that will allow us to reflect who he is. He knows that the greatest harmony we will experience in our relationship with him and with others is when we're obedient and we trust him to shape our character. And so he disciplines and he trains even when it's painful so that we can fulfill the purpose that he has for our lives to reflect his character And that's what we're going to talk about this morning as we talk about the discipline of God. And particularly, we're going to look at the book of Hebrews. In the book of Hebrews, one of the primary themes of the book of Hebrews is how can you and I mature as disciples of Jesus Christ? And the author of Hebrews issues warnings and promises for the people of God. This is what might happen if you disobey and you drift from your faith in Jesus Christ. And this is what will happen if you obey and you pursue the road of spiritual maturity. And so that's the major theme, really, of the book of Hebrews, and particularly in Hebrews chapter 12 the author talks about discipline as one way in which God trains us to be like Jesus Christ. And in the book of Hebrews in particular, these were people who were undergoing painful experiences of suffering as they walked with God. And the writer of Hebrews told them, look at that suffering, look at that pain as a way in which God is shaping you. There are some of you who came in here this morning and you are experiencing pain or suffering maybe because of sinful choices you made or maybe because of the fact that we simply live in a fallen world. And where the writer of Hebrews will take us this morning is to say in every moment of pain we have an opportunity to grow, to become more like the one who made us and who saved us. So we're going to look particularly at Hebrews chapter 12. I'm going to read from verses 4 through 13 this morning. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin, and you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Therefore strengthen the hands that are weak, and the knees that are feeble, and make straight paths for your feet, so that the limb which is lame may not be put out of joint, but rather healed." Okay, the first thing that I see as I read this passage is this that the motivation of God's discipline is love. The author says God disciplines us because he loves us. He views us as his children, as his sons. A loving parent disciplines. A loving parent sets boundaries. A loving parent will tell kids, This is where you may go, this is where you may not go, this is what you may do, this is what you may not do. There are boundaries. Around a parent child relationship. Uh, A number of years ago, I was at the mall food court with my kids, and right in the middle of that mall food court, there were some of those little coin operated cars and trucks and buses and things like that. And uh, my kids were just kind of crawling around on them. They weren't really uh, riding them because I didn't have any money on me to put into the machines at that moment, but as they were playing, Another kid came up, he was probably six or seven years old, and he looked at me and he said, will you give me some money to ride that truck? And uh, I thought about having a conversation with him about asking strangers for money, but I decided to kind of let that pass. And I, I went in and said, no, I'm sorry, pal, I don't have any money on me. Uh, and honestly, if I did, I probably would tell you, you got to ask your parents about that. I'm not really in a position to let you ride that. And, and he said to me, I will ask my dad my dad always gives me money when I ask, like that. And then he walked away, and he came back with money, and he got on the ride and started riding it. Now, it may or may not be true that his dad always gives him money when he asks, As you know, often with small children, fiction flows as freely from their mouths as truth, right? So, uh, this reality may not have been present; it may have been more of a wished-for dream in his life. Um, But let's assume for a moment that it is true, that his dad always gives him what he asks for and just dishes out the money whenever he asks for it. Would that be a loving father? No. That would be a tragedy. That would be a father who is more concerned with what his child thinks he wants than with what is best. Loving parents set boundaries. One of the great and tragic lies of our culture is that if you love somebody, you never tell them they're wrong. That if you love somebody, you allow them to pursue whatever behavior, whatever mindset they think is best, even if that is self-destructive. And so we convince ourselves, I think, often even as Christians, that to love somebody means I should just simply stand by and allow them to make destructive choices, choices that will destroy their body, their mind, their spirit, and their heart, and their relationship with God and others. And it's a lie. And in fact, it's not the way people act when they love another person. It's not the way God acts. It's not the way God acts, Siri. All right, (laughs) say it again. That is not the way that God treats us. It's a hard truth, I know. All right, we'll pull this back together. God does not respond toward us that way. As you look, even go back to the Old Testament, you look at God's relationship with the nation of Israel. That's not how he responded to them. I was reading the book of Deuteronomy a week or so ago. And uh, Deuteronomy 27, Moses is uh, reminding the people of how God loves them before they go into the promised land, and he's reminding the people of the law. And in Deuteronomy 27, 18 and 19, he tells them, you are God's treasured possession. That's how much he loves you. You're his treasured possession. You're his people. And in fact, he has promised you this land. And he has promised you life with him because he loves you. But right after that, Deuteronomy 28 is a list of consequences that the people would incur if they didn't obey. In fact, Deuteronomy 28 calls them curses. Your land will be cursed. Your children will be cursed. Your food will be cursed. Your crops will be cursed. You will be a byword before all the nations who will laugh at you. And then it lists blessings for obedience. And in fact, the nation of Israel did not obey God. And they experienced the curses of the law. And yet God loved them and still drew them back into relationship with himself, ultimately through Jesus Christ. One of the most beautiful depictions of God's love and discipline in the Old Testament is in the book of Hosea, which is about the faithlessness of God's people and yet God's continued love for them, even in the midst of discipline. And so the first part of the book, the analogy is Israel as a faithless spouse, a faithless wife. And then in chapter 11, Hosea rounds a corner and he uses a father-son illustration. And he says, I called you, my son, my people, I called you out of Egypt, I redeemed you from Egypt, I promised you a land, and I gave you prophets and teachers to tell you what I wanted, and yet you disobeyed. And so the consequence is that the Assyrians are going to come, and this was to the northern kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians will come and they will take you off the land. That is discipline for my son. And yet the chapter doesn't end there, because toward the end of Hosea 11, God bursts into an emotional song and says, but how can I give you up, O Israel? I cannot let you go, so I will restore you, despite having to discipline, despite having to send you away, despite your disobedience. And he restores, ultimately through the death resurrection of Jesus Christ, which paves the way for us to be forgiven, for Israel to be forgiven, for the Spirit of God to live in our hearts. God disciplines because he loves. One other illustration. When I was about eight or nine years old, there was a child who lived on our street where I grew up who was probably four or five, and he could frequently be found playing in the street in his birthday suit, right? Uh, Now, there is, I suppose, an age where it's kind of all right to run around without clothes on, maybe a year, you know, maybe 18 months on the outside. By the time you're five, though, um, your parents probably should set a boundary, right? Uh, If you're going to go outside, you must wear pants, right? That's a reasonable boundary, I think, for parents to set. If you're going to ride your skateboard, down the center of the road, it's best if you have on clothes, right? And so that's a reasonable boundary, but for whatever reason, I don't know what was going on inside that house. I don't know if the child begged and pleaded to be allowed outside naked. I don't know if his parents just didn't pay attention and he was outside for hours at a time without clothes on. I realize in this day and age, people would call the police. We didn't really do that uh, back then. But in fact, this story was so outrageous in my memory that I actually had to ask my family, am I remembering this correctly? Did this actually happen? Because I wasn't sure. And they assured me that yes, it did. And and in hindsight, I look back and I say, that is an illustration of why loving parents set boundaries. Child says, I think it would be best for me to just be free. Mom and dad said, no, right? Right? There are multiple dangers that could accrue to you if you go outside in the street on your skateboard alone without clothes, right? So we're going to set a boundary. God disciplines because he loves. And we're tempted to think that he disciplines because he's mean or because he is cruel or because he doesn't want us to be free, but quite the opposite is true. So the motivation of his discipline is love, and that's critical to remember because often the means of discipline are painful. In Hebrews 12, 11, the writer says that all discipline seems not to be joyful for the moment, uh, but sorrowful. And as we said at the beginning, that, that's really true. All discipline seems to be sorrowful in the moment. Sometimes pain has to precede health. Uh, I broke my arm when I was young, and I'll never forget the experience of having it set by a doctor. Although they gave me some sort of anesthetic, it was insufficient to mask the terrible pain of having that bone set. Uh, I remember screaming so loud that they actually closed the door so that other patients would not be frightened by my pain. And yet today, because of that pain, my arm is healthy. They tell me it's stronger than before I broke it, at least at that spot. I'm not going to test that theory. Sometimes pain precedes health. And often the means of discipline that God uses in our lives hurt. There are a few ways in which pain enters our life and trains us to be more like Jesus. One is simply through the conviction of God's Spirit. If you know Jesus Christ then His Spirit lives within you. And if you begin to disobey, if you begin to rebel, the Spirit will convict your heart and your mind to say, don't do that. Do not turn around before you incur consequences that are tragic and painful to you and those around you. King David, writing in Psalm 32, says this about God's internal conviction in the midst of sin. When I kept silent about my sin... My body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you and my iniquity I did not hide. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgave the guilt of my sin. David says, as long as I hid this sin, as long as I thought I could muscle through, as long as I thought that I could keep this secret, I was miserable. If you want to be a miserable Christian, pursue a secret path of disobedience and see how you feel out of step with God and out of step with his purposes for your life. When that conviction stops, actually, is when we really ought to worry because God is lovingly training us. There's a very famous theologian, from the fourth century, named Augustine, uh, one of the giants of Christian theology. And to read his story, what you find is throughout his early life, Augustine pursued every way he could think of to satisfy himself apart from God. He indulged In fleshly pursuits, indulged his lusts, he sought to find fulfillment in rhetoric and public speaking and philosophy and everything he could think of, and everything left him miserable and cold because God was speaking to Augustine through his spirit. And in his book, Confessions, Augustine said this, "'You saw me, and it pleased you to transform all that was misshapen in me. Your goad was thrusting at my heart.' giving me no peace until the eye of my soul could discern you without mistake. Under the secret touch of your healing hand, my swelling pride subsided. And day by day, the pain I suffered brought me health, like an ointment which stung but cleared the confusion and darkness from the eye of my mind. And in his summary of his book, at the beginning, he says this famous line, "'You made us for yourself, and our hearts are restless.'" until they find rest in you. Right, what is Augustine saying? As long as he pursued his own way, as long as he disobeyed, he was miserable because the Spirit of God was operating in a way that hurt, but in a way that brought health. So sometimes God's means of discipline is the conviction of the Spirit. Sometimes it's actually suffering in our life, in our circumstances, in those Around us, And there's a couple of ways that suffering could enter into your life. One of those is by our own choices, our own sinful choices, that it is possible that when we suffer, it is because we have said or done something that brings consequences. The world is designed around consequences for our actions. So if I drink too much one night, I will feel terrible the next day. If I say something unkind to you on a consistent basis, you might turn around and do something to my face, right? That is natural consequence. And often, that is the means by which God allows suffering into our lives to train us, stop doing that thing. When my eldest daughter was around three years old, just as she was beginning to learn to sit in a normal chair and not in a high chair, Uh, She had this habit, which some of of us still have to this day, of leaning back in the chair, right? She would take the front two legs off the ground and kind of rock back and kind of kick her feet against the table, and we would say, Elizabeth, stop that. You're going to fall. She'd stop for a few minutes, and then she'd do it again. Stop it, you're going to fall, right? And she'd keep doing it. Well, one uh, day at lunch, my wife was sitting with a friend and Elizabeth was there and they were talking and Elizabeth began this rocking back and forth and it was a relatively low table, relatively small chair. Shannon said to her, Elizabeth, stop that. And Elizabeth continued her rocking. And so my wife made a decision at that point not to warn her again. And she continued her rocking, and the rocking got more vigorous as time went on. And eventually, wham, the chair went down on the floor. And Elizabeth was not injured, but she was startled. Stood up, began to cry. And my wife's friend, who didn't have children at that time, looked at her and said, Did you let her fall? (laughs) And Shannon said, That is what we call a calculated risk. (laughs) I knew that she would not get injured. I knew that it was a safe spot. But I also knew she needed to learn, don't do that. Because when the chair is higher and the floor is harder, it could have grave consequences. Often God allows pain because of our decisions into our life to train us. Don't say that. Don't do that. Don't look at that because he loves us. And before the consequences are too grave, he wants to let us know. Paul Brand is a famous surgeon and doctor. He he was the first one to discover the mechanism by which the leprosy bacteria causes disfigurement to people's fingers and toes, particularly, but really to their whole body. And what he discovered was that uh, the bacteria actually causes a deadening of the nerves around your body and around your skin such that you don't feel pain like you should. So an individual with leprosy might put his hand or her hand on a hot stove and not feel anything until the hand is burned away. And they may not notice it until later. And this led him to begin to think about the structure by which God made our bodies and the mechanism of pain. He wrote a book with Philip Yancey prior to his death about the subject of pain. And what he says in that book is that pain is God's warning system to you. So that when you put your hand on a hot stove, you go, oh, and you pull it away before you do permanent damage. You step on a nail or attack, you pull your foot up and you pull that out. Somebody who doesn't feel pain will just allow it to sit there until it destroys the foot. Pain is God's warning system that he designed us with And that's the way natural consequences work. Now, I realize that there are other ways in which we suffer that we can't control, that we had nothing to do with because we live in a fallen world. So people around us get sick or die or we experience problems in our lives that are not a direct result of our sin. Even those, the author of Hebrews indicates are a means at times of God's discipline. Even if God, because he's not the author of evil, even if God did not directly sin to some calamity, he allowed it still into your life as an opportunity to trust him, to become more like Jesus. And those who have suffered will tell you that suffering can either make you bitter, angry, and drive you away from God and other people, where it can soften your heart and teach you to be compassionate, teach you to be a person of love and comfort and trust and righteousness. In 2 Corinthians, Paul talks about how suffering can transform our character. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our afflictions so that we will be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. Suffering has a way of rounding off the rough edges of our character if we allow God to work in the midst of it. Some of you in here have suffered deeply. Others have not, at least yet. It's not necessarily a function of what you've done or not done. It's not necessarily a function of your age. It's sometimes simply a function of the fact that we live in a broken, sinful, fallen world. And some people hurt, <clears throat> hurt more than others at times. And yet the author of Hebrews tells us in every moment of suffering, we have an opportunity to allow God to refine our character, to be more like Jesus Christ. Compared to some even in this room, I've not suffered but a drop in the bucket of what you have. Uh, But I was reminded this past week of an incident uh, from our family's life and how it transformed or began to transform certain areas of my character in which I didn't even know I needed to be changed. Uh, When my son was born, uh, he was sick. He could not draw breath. Uh, He had a very close call in the delivery room and they got him over to the NICU and he was there for some time while he recovered and while they gave him oxygen and while they tried to bring him back to health. And I remember looking around in that place and partly grieving because this entrance of my son into the world didn't look like the image I had in my head, right? My daughters weren't able to see him for quite some time because of where he was. And I looked around and I saw others in this room whose kids were sicker, some of whom didn't make it. And all of a sudden, I I began to sense a a different feeling of compassion and love in my heart, both toward my own child and toward other people that I didn't even know that I needed to feel. I learned about certain priorities in my life that I didn't even know I needed to have, where ordinarily and still to this day, I, I will complain about large unexpected bills. I think that's human, and yet that very large, very unexpected bill we got from the NICU, all of a sudden I saw it in a different perspective. There are things more important than a few thousand bucks when I'm holding my healthy son. And God began to use that moment to round off some rough edges in my own heart and life that I didn't even know were there. And often there is pride and fear and self-sufficiency, and lust, and greed, and anger in our hearts that we don't even know is there. And one of the ways in which God rounds those things off is by allowing pain and allowing suffering into our lives so we can reflect Jesus Christ. Because that's how much God loves us. And the ultimate goal is that we will reflect his character. The goal of discipline is righteousness. In verses 10 and 11, he says, For they disciplined us, that is our earthly fathers, disciplined us for a short time as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful. Yet to those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. The goal is that we reflect the character of God as most clearly expressed to us in the person of Jesus Christ. All of us have seen sports movies in which there's some great coach who takes a ragtag bunch of kids and turns them into a disciplined sports machine, right, and they win the championship. I was thinking this week about the movie Miracle, about the 1980 United States hockey team, Olympic hockey team, that defeated the Russians in what was known as the miracle on ice, right? And uh, the coach, Coach Brooks uh, was his name, uh, trained those men to think as a team, to work hard. And one of the great lines from the movie is, this cannot be a team of common men, right? Because he says, common men go nowhere. And so he trains them, and there's a famous scene after a match which he felt they had not competed with sufficient fire and effort and so he keeps them in the rink and they run a drill over and over and over again they have to skate from one end of the rink to the other end of the rink back and forth and back and forth and he goes again again and again right and it's very dramatic and the other coaches are all going no no you're going to kill him right he goes no again 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 until they begin to recognize that they are a unit and not individuals, and that he expects full effort from them, and they hated him that night. But they loved him when they won, because he was refining them as a good coach does. The goal of discipline is righteousness. God wants to transform us into the character of Jesus Christ. That's 2 Corinthians 3, 18, but we all, with unveiled face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as from the Lord, the Spirit. Through the conviction of his Spirit, through the power of his word, through the exhortation of the body of Christ, and even through suffering in our lives, God will discipline and change us. He will set boundaries around our lives, and there will be consequences for stepping outside of those boundaries because he loves us. And so, the question that remains for us this morning is how do we respond when we find ourselves confronted with the discipline of God? How should we respond? A few things. First of all, listen. What needs to change? Listen to the Word, listen to the Spirit of God. Find time alone in quiet with Him where you can hear what He's trying to say to you through His Spirit. And through his word. And even, yes, in the midst of suffering, it may not be clear that God sent something to send you a lesson. God is not abusive, and he is not the author of evil. But in the midst of that suffering, ask, what is the opportunity here for me to learn to trust God? I mentioned Paul Brand a few minutes ago. One of the points he makes in his book about pain is that often we short-circuit the process of learning through pain by trying to numb it or dull it or avoid it too quickly. So if we get a headache, we immediately run and we take two Tylenol. And not that there's anything evil or wrong with taking Tylenol, but he makes the point that sometimes maybe we should pause and think, why does my head hurt? Did I drink too much? Have I not slept for a week? Am I stressed? Did I bang my head against a wall? Listen to what God may be trying to say. Instead of succumbing to the temptation to say, all I want is to escape this discomfort. Submit to God's discipline. Again, for most of us, our initial reaction to being told that we are wrong is defensiveness. Nobody likes to be told that they're wrong. If you like being told that you're wrong, you probably have a problem that requires some sort of counseling, Nobody likes it. And so we get defensive, and we get rebellious, and we get frustrated, and yet the scripture calls us to listen and then submit, to recognize that God is is right. He's always right. So when he tells me that the choices I am making with my body, with my mind, with my eyes, with my words, when he says those choices are wrong and they are self-destructive, I trust him instead of trying to find a way out. And I ask him, how can I change now? What are the means by which I can grow into the likeness of Jesus Christ? And it may be as you think about listening and Submitting, those may be difficult for you, perhaps because you don't yet know him. And so you rebel against him because you don't yet have a relationship of love with God through Jesus Christ. And for you this morning, the message may be that the first thing for you is to believe that Jesus died for your sin. And God in love forgives those who trust in his death and resurrection. And he provides the opportunity now for you to live the life that he's calling you to to live, that he made you to live, and to experience eternity with him. And it may be that's where you need to start, is simply to accept that free gift. It may be that you know Jesus Christ already, and you're wrestling to submit to what God is doing in your life. You're, you're sensing that you're beginning to feel angry, bitter, defensive, frustrated as you feel the conviction of the Spirit and as you experience trial. The author of Hebrews says, submit to God's discipline so that you can become like Jesus Christ and pray. Pray that God will help you and me to be transformed into the image of the one who made us to know him and to reflect him and who has empowered us through his spirit to do just that. Even when the discipline is painful, pray that we will learn to be more like our Savior so that the world can see in us who he is, his loving and holy and perfect nature. And the one who desires to know everybody and draw them to himself calls us to proclaim that message as well with our words and with our lives. Would you pray with me? Father, we thank you so much for the opportunity to look at your word this morning. We confess that we don't always respond well to your discipline and training in our lives, particularly when it is painful. So I pray we would listen and we would submit to you. I pray that you would build in us the fruit of the Spirit and flush away the deeds of the flesh. Father, I pray that we would trust in you with each step knowing that your plan for our lives is better than our own, knowing that you always love, you are always present, and you always discipline for our good. I pray give us strength to obey you. And We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.